for those of you who don't know, um, for the past six years or so, uh, Scum of the Earth has had a relationship with Ridley Hall, which is part of the Cambridge University in Cambridge, England. Ridley is a training seminary for Church of England ministers, and it was about seven, eight, six years ago, something like that, six years ago, six years ago that um, a an English pastor who was about ready to go teach at Ridley came and visited Scum of the Earth. The Reverend Dave Mayle was a pastor of a successful church plant in Huddersfield where he went through the Church of England, there's a lot of red tape, got it all done, and then when he opened it, actually young people started arriving, which was kind of a phenomenon uh, in, in England. People were actually coming to church, and not only people, but young people were coming to church, which was even more odd, and they were excited about it, which was just crazy. And, and so the powers that be took notice, and after several years, they asked uh, Reverend Dave Mayle, who had begun this church called The Net to come and teach at Ridley Hall, these fresh expressions of ministry. And so Dave teaches now not at one but at two seminaries in Cambridge, Westcott House and Ridley Hall. He is a published author with a few books uh, to his credit, one called The Church Unplugged, which is about his experience in Huddersfield. And he was in a time of sabbatical between being a pastor for several years and then coming into the academy and teaching at the university. So on his sabbatical, he came to the U.S. and was checking out churches. And, of course, when he Googled churches in Denver and saw Scum of the Earth Church, he thought, I have to go there. And so I met him after church for a beer, he and his friend, and he said, you know, would it be okay if in a couple years I bring some students from Cambridge to Scum of the Earth so that they can get a sense of this place and what you guys are all about? And I said, of course. And uh, I was surprised, actually, when two years later he actually did arrive with a bunch of students. We had a grand time. I kind of played host and got to talk to a lot of folks from Scum. And there are wonderful people all around Denver who are doing what I would call cutting-edge ministry. And so I uh, took them around Denver, of course, had to go up in the mountains, et cetera, et cetera. So that was four years ago. Then two years ago, he brought another group of students, and we did the whole thing again. And uh, such is the case right now. So Dave is here from Cambridge with some students, and uh, it is not very often that we get to have a speaker from over 4,700 miles away, come and speak to us at SCUM. So I would urge you to pay attention, not only today, but on Tuesday, this Tuesday, we're going to have Dave back talking about a different topic. It's as if, if you look at Western Europe and especially England, it's like they're ahead of us, time-wise. It's, it's more of a post-Christian culture than the U.S. is. 
And on Tuesday night, he's going to be talking about that whole phenomenon. What's it like to be a Christian in a country where only 5% of the population goes to church, where most people have no background in the biblical stories? What's that like to be part of a post-Christian culture? America's not there yet. I believe we're probably going to be there. And so David's going to come and speak to us. So please come back on Tuesday night if you'd like to at 7 o'clock right here to hear Dave again. But right now, I would like to uh, say a prayer and then invite Dave up. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would anoint Dave with your Holy Spirit and that your words would be his words and his words would be your words. Open our hearts, Lord, and our minds and our ears that we can hear what it is you are trying to tell us. And let us not just be hearers of your words, Lord, but also doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please welcome my friend and yours, the Reverend Dave Mail. Well, thank you for that, um, Mike. And uh, great to be back here. As Mike said, this is my fourth time. And uh, I always consider it a great honor uh, to be here at SCUM and to be with you all. And um, thank you for coming tonight. Uh, it's brilliant for us to be here. I'm here with five of the students who are training to be uh, church pastors. Do you want to put your hands in your air where you are? Four. Where's Kina? Five. Over there. Um, <clears throat> we love being here because uh, this summer has been the wettest summer in Britain in uh, 100 years and the second wettest summer ever since records began. It didn't start that way. We've been in drought up to May, and then the government declared it was drought, and it hasn't stopped raining since. <laughs> Within two weeks after a drought had been declared, we had floods. So, um, so we're loving being here, and uh, enjoying the weather has just been fantastic. And um, it's great to meet up with Mike and Mary again. What Mike didn't add was that actually Mike came over to uh, Cambridge and to uh, the UK uh, just this summer in May. Uh, and uh, it's, it was great to host them and to look after them. And Mike went around, and I'd just like to say Mike and Mary did a brilliant job uh, going around Britain talking about scum uh, and uh, just sharing stuff they've been learning. And out of that, I, I just want to say tonight that obviously we share a common language, but not always a common vocabulary. So I hope you'll be able to understand the kind of things I'm saying. Um, <clears throat> Mike asked me what he should be wearing when he was speaking at some of these places. And I said, well, you just need to wear a pair of trousers and a jumper. And uh, that means a sweater in, in the UK. And I discovered that a jumper was a very different thing. <laughs> and... Uh, I got immediately a, 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 an email back from Mike just checking whether I really meant a jumper. <laughs> the other thing I'd like to say about Mike is that um, the first day we were there, we were in the car, my car, driving to this place. It was a long way, about a three-hour drive. And uh, we had to do, uh, we came out of this cafe area and we had to do a left turn onto a main road. Now, in the UK, we drive on the proper side of the road. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, so a left turn is the equivalent of your right turn. So, it's, you know, you just, it's an easy one. And I checked there was no, nothing coming. Now, coming up on the other side of the road, which was going to be nowhere near us, was a large lorry. 
Uh, so I turn that left, perfectly safe. Of course, Mike's in the passenger seat, and he sees on the other side of the road this lit big lorry coming the other way. Now, at this point, the story slightly diverges. Mike's version is, as I pulled out, he went, whoa! <clears throat> the truth is, as Mary and I will tell you, he went something like this, ah! <clears throat> what I can only describe as, basically, he cried like a baby. So, um, uh, it was, no, it was a pleasure. We had a great 10 days together. Great fun, great fun. He's also asked me to uh, tell this story, which has got absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about tonight. But um, I've been uh, a pastor in uh, the Church of England, which is a bit like the Episcopal Church, but not really, for um, over 20 years. And when I started, um, the Church of England uh, in the area I was in decided that, this, that the great honor for that would be to take a service, a Eucharistic, a communion service, at the, your local cathedral. So they asked me to do that. Now, I wasn't used to that kind of thing. I wasn't from that kind of background. I was from a Methodist background, really. Um, and I was petrified. And I think they realized that. So they asked if I would do a Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock. So you've got to imagine this huge cathedral, old cathedral, you know, seats thousands. And I had six people. So I come out, and being the Church of England, I'm dressed up in all the, well, I suppose in a sense it was a jumper you know, that I was dressed up in, um, and that was right, um, and all this stuff, and I do the service really, really badly, because I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. Uh, and then I go off at the end, and the guy, the kind of verger that was helping, uh, took me into this room, and he said to me, I'm going off for breakfast now, just, you know, get changed, and then come out this door, and it will lock behind you. So I thought, that's fine. Now, I was a bit flustered, because... It, it wasn't my kind of scene, really, all dressing up and in a big cathedral and everything. So I got changed, and I went out the door, and then I realized that I'd gone out the wrong door. I'd gone out the door opposite it, and I'd come into like a kind of just a space. It was like a cupboard, really. So I realized I'm my mistake, and I turned around to go back into the room I'd been to go through the door to go home. Unfortunately, the door behind me had now locked. And what you need to realize um, if, uh, is 21 years ago, some of you are going to, this is going to be a bit of a shock for you. There was no such things as mobile phones. <laughs> I know you, this, you can hardly believe this, but actually I couldn't just phone some, and someone and say I'm locked in. And I thought, I don't want to hang around in this little kind of box area uh, for hours till someone discovers me. So I kind of looked around, and I saw that uh, at the wall of it used to be a kind of door. And there was like a gap at the, well, kind of two-thirds down. Uh, and so I looked through this kind of gap. There was a flap on it, and I could see out. There was a lane at the back of the cathedral. And by this time, it was like 8.30 in the morning, and there were people walking to work. So I thought, this is it. So I kind of got down on my knees through, looked through this gap, and as I saw the kind of outline of someone coming, I just shouted through this gap, help, I'm locked in the cathedral, can you help me? Now, as you can imagine, at that point, they kind of sped up. 
you can imagine all these people, you know, just slightly tired and going to work. And then suddenly I heard this madman shouting at me or I heard God speak for me, to me from the cathedral. Um, eventually somebody stopped and I explained the situation. Uh, I told them to go across this office where someone was and they, they did that. They uh, got the person across, and to be honest, 21 years later, the people at the cathedral still remember that day uh, when the idiot got himself locked in. But there is a point to this, which is that, um, as well as being very embarrassing for me, um, I think one of the great things for me about being in Scum is that so many churches I go to, it does feel like they're kind of locked in, and they're shouting out at the world outside, we're in here. Uh, But I think one of the great things about you at SCUM is that that isn't the way you are. You're not locked in. uh, And uh, you're out there in God's world, involved in God's mission. And that's what I want to think about um, over the next three or four hours as we're together. (laughs) That wasn't a joke. (laughs) Not what you said, Mike, three or four hours. Or was that three to four minutes? I can't remember now. Um, I, want to, I just want to think a bit about uh, God's mission, and I want to think about it through one passage. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Mark 6, and uh, I want to talk about a very familiar passage tonight, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a passage that I've always struggled to really kind of get to grips with. And over uh, this summer, I think I began to understand more about it. I used to think of it really as a miracle story, and it is a miracle, but I don't think that's the emphasis that Mark has here from this story. I think the story is really, uh, strangely, uh, about mission, and the key to it uh, is the context. So let me read, before I read that passage, a little bit of the context, which is earlier in John Uh, um, Sorry, Mark chapter 6. This is what uh, Mark writes uh, towards the end of verse 6. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. And calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter house, stay there until you leave that town. And if, any of you, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Then they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then there's a bit of a break in the story with just the beheading of John the Baptist. It's a little bit of an interlude there while he loses his head. But then we get to the feeding of the 5,000, and, um, and then you, you begin to see, yeah, these, this goes together because it carries on in a sense. So they've gone out, they've done their preaching, they've done their anointing, they've done their healing. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. That's from what they've been sent out to do. Then, because so many people were coming and going, They did not even have a chance to eat. And so he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
So he began teaching them many things. And by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a person's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish amongst them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. This is the number of the men who who had eaten was 5,000. So the context of this story is Jesus sending out the 12, two by two, to preach, to cast out demons and heal. And then we kind of have the debrief session on how it goes. And this is the only time that Mark uses the word apostles here, which literally means those who are sent. And they're now coming back, talking with Jesus. And the good news is, after all this hard work, Jesus invites them on a prayer retreat. He says, you come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I wonder tonight if we would love somebody to say that to us. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I bet the disciples thought, oh, what a great leader. Yeah, what a great life-work balance. He understands what we need and what we want. And so they go across this lake to the quiet place, but it doesn't quite work out that way, does it? Because many people saw them leaving and ran ahead of them and got there before them. And verse 34 says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We see two very different responses to the crowd. Jesus had compassion. Compassion is is Mark's favorite word in this gospel. It literally means for your guts to be affected by what you see, that you have to act that actually you are compelled to do something about this situation. Despite Jesus promising this quiet place, seeing these people, he had to do something. And he uses this phrase, like sheep without a shepherd. And for the people of that time, they would have been very clear what that meant. They knew their Old Testament. They knew Numbers 27, where Moses provides a new leader and says to them that he's going to provide them with Joshua so they will not be like sheep without a shepherd. They would have known from the prophetic literature things like Ezekiel 34, where um, the prophet Ezekiel and this vision from God promises the new shepherd who will come and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus was clearly saying in his actions, I'm the new Moses, I'm the new David. This is, these are the actions of the Messiah. 
That would have been clear to the people then. It's not so clear to us today. And so what does he do? He feeds them, but in a different way to Moses would have or the prophets. He began teaching them many things. And at the heart of his teaching was who he was, that he was the new Moses, that he was the new David, that he was the Messiah. It's at the heart of Mark's gospel. We see that further back in uh, Mark 4, um, when in verse 41, when Jesus calms the storm and his disciples say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? That's In a sense, that's probably the question at the center of the gospel. Maybe it is the question for somebody here tonight. Who is this? Who is this Jesus we've been hearing about, that we've been singing about, that this church is here for? Who is this Jesus? And it's interesting, in, uh, before he sends out the 12, that we get a very different answer when he goes back to his hometown. They say at the beginning of chapter 6, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom that's been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You know, who does this upstart think he is? How does he claim to be the Messiah? We know he is. We know his brothers and sisters. We've seen him playing as a child in the streets. But Jesus had compassion. What about the disciples? What was their compassion like? It's slightly different, wasn't it? This was their compassion. It was late in the day, so they said, this is a remote place and it's already very late. Send them away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It's a slightly different picture to Jesus' compassion. I know you know very well here all about the kind of health and safety. When we came here two years ago, we were looking forward to being in this new building. And then the fire regulations decided that that wasn't going to happen. And in a sense... These are the people behind the fire regulations. That's how the disciples are acting. Jesus, this is a very deserted place. This could get difficult with probably up to 15,000 people here. This is late. There's going to be a lot of danger if we camp out. These people are hungry. This isn't safe. What if somebody gets sick through this and sues us? What happens if it all goes wrong? We might need to shrink this floor space here so that we can fit all these people in. That's a very different reaction to Jesus, isn't it? To his compassion. That love that forces him to act. Whereas they're just thinking sensibly. Or not sensibly, maybe. One of the commentators says this. Despite their, their being with Jesus, they still don't really comprehend. To be with Jesus is to learn of him. To think the things of God, not of human beings. The disciples, however, show themselves prone to regard reality from a human point of view. From a human point of view. See, Jesus, as he saw reality, saw these people like sheep without a shepherd. The disciples just saw them as difficulties that could cause them some hassle. And I suppose the big question that comes to us from this is, 
how do we see the reality that we face as a church, as individuals, in our locality, in our ministries, in our community? Through the eyes of Jesus, through love and compassion, or just another bit of hard work that we're going to have to do? How do we see the reality that we're going to face tomorrow? Through the eyes of Jesus and his love and compassion, or just through, oh, here's another Monday and we've got to do this again? One of the things I've been thinking about this summer, I've been writing a new book, is I, I think that whether we are a Christian yet or not, actually we probably face the same two key questions when it comes to all this stuff. The first is this question. And it's about our focus, I suppose. Is Jesus who he says he is? See, I don't think that's just a question we face while we're thinking about becoming followers of Jesus. It's a question I face, if I'm honest, every day. Because the question in reality is, am I going to take him at his word? Not just believe in him in kind of intellectual ascent. These are the right things to believe about Jesus. You know, he, he was born of Mary, he died on the cross, he rose again. Not just believing those things in terms of uh, like a, an exam at a college, but actually saying, I am going to put my life on the line and do what Jesus says. I'm going to take him at his word. I think that is a question that we face all the time. And in a sense, we face before we start to follow him, but we continue to face. And I think the second question that we face then, and I think the disciples faced it, is can Jesus use me as I am today? Because I think often we look around and we think, oh, uh, Jesus can use Mike Says, but he can't use me. I I wish I was like him. Or we think when we get to a certain kind of Christian level, then maybe Jesus will use me. Just to show you, I'm, I'm in with the context. The uh, Denver Broncos had their roster on Friday, didn't they? And uh, they had 53 players you're allowed to have in the NFL. So they had to cut quite a few of their players. And I think sometimes we think in terms of Jesus that actually he, he cuts us from active service. He's not, he's not going to be able to use us. But that isn't, as we'll see, the truth. The truth is that he loves to use us as we are and wants to use us in his mission and delights in using us. Those are the two big questions. Am I going to really believe in Jesus in terms of taking him at his word? Am I going to do the kind of things he talked about in denying myself and taking up the cross, self-sacrifice and loving and trusting and believing him? Am I going to walk the tightrope of faith even when it gets difficult and causes me pain and difficulties? Am I actually going to trust that he is going to be there and as we sang about that he is not going to let me go? Am I really going to take him at his word or am I just going to say I believe in it intellectually? And do I really believe that he can use me as I am today in his mission for his glory? 
So the learning then starts in this for the disciples to get very, very practical. I like to call this section, you want to do, us to do what? Verse 37, Jesus says to them when they start complaining, and the, the word in the Greek is emphatic, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And you can imagine the panic in the disciples. They have now got uh, probably 15,000, I said, because Mark records there were at least 5,000 men. That doesn't mean just men were there. So the likelihood is you're talking about a crowd of 15,000. Now, um, the other night we went to Coursefield. There were about 30,000 watching the Rockies. So half that crowd. And imagine we were just there in the middle of the field, and we had a little table with five loaves on it and two fishes. And then we announced over the radio that we wanted 15,000 people to stay, and we were going to feed them. I mean, imagine how you would feel. You'd be going to Mike, how did you ever agree to this? How did you ever get us into that? So I think Jesus begins to pick this up. And so he says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. You know, take an inventory of your resources. And they come back with the answer of, we've got five loaves and two fishes. Now, at this point, if you've ever been in Sunday school, you have that lovely story about how nice it is to share. And if only people would start sharing, everything would change. I I have no doubt that that is not at all what Mark intends here. I suspect that the answer is quite sarcastic in a way. Um, commentators often say, why do they suddenly bring in fish? And, I, there's part, and this may be wrong, but I wonder if they kind of checked there were, the, there were five loaves and two fishes. And they, they're like, well, Jesus, 15,000. The good news is we've got five loaves. But of course, don't worry, because we've got two fish as well, so everything will be fine. And I wonder if there's a bit of kind of sarcasm there to Jesus. But the thing that they didn't understand was what their true resource was. Because they looked at the situation with their eyes, and there were all these people and this tiny amount of resources. And yet actually their resource was Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That was the big change. That's what was going to make everything possible. I think maybe in the Western churches where the church is in decline, actually one of the problems is that we've got lots of resources. And so the danger is that we think, actually, we've got quite a lot of stuff. We we end up being quite complacent because we've got all this stuff. And this stuff is fantastic, but the danger is that we forget the real resource is Jesus. Or it might be sometimes we feel we've got nothing to offer as individuals or as churches. But actually, we need to remember we have the resource of Jesus, the Messiah. That's what makes us different. The only thing that we have to offer, it's not ourselves, it is Jesus. The only thing that can change us is Jesus. The only thing that can change our world is Jesus. Yes, as we'll see, working through us, definitely. But our true resource is Jesus. And then it starts to get worse for the disciples because they're not happy at all with the direction of what's happening. 
And then Mark says, Jesus directs them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and then he broke the loaves. And then, what did he do? He gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Oh, thanks, Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're the ones that are going to have to face the customers when there's nothing left. Yeah, thanks for this. As they begin to understand that the, by the way that Jesus is now moving the people around, they're going to expect a big meal. And now we're going to look complete idiots. Do the mass, Jesus. Five loaves into 15,000 does not go. And the problem is we know the end of the story, so we miss the kind of tension that's there. And we know that story so well. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. What an abundance. Not just that people were fed, but loads was left over. And one of the big questions that commentators often say is, why wasn't there a huge reaction from these 15,000 people? Why didn't they go mad at this miracle? I think it is purely because this wasn't a miracle for the crowd. This was a miracle for the disciples. This was part of their mission training. I'm not sure the crowd even realized this was a miracle because they weren't the intended recipients of what was going on. This was the training for them. So as we come towards the end, what was then in Jesus' training for the disciples, his learning outcome? What was he wanting to teach them? I think it was simply, bring your little to me. You know, I think we often stand in that same place as churches and as individuals. We look round and we're part of a, you know, we think we're the minority now. Even in America, people coming to church, you are the minority And we think, how are we ever going to see people come to Christ and numbers begin to come in? How are we going to begin to transform our communities and our nation so that it might honor God? We just don't have a lot to offer. But Jesus says, bring your little to me. We know, in a sense, we don't have the resources to transform the world, but, but... We know somebody who does. You see, the exciting thing about this is that today is the same Jesus who did that miracle. That it's the same mission that God is calling us on. A a mission of love and compassion to his world. Same Jesus, same mission. We are the ones who are sent out by him. How do we see our reality and the reality of our church and our communities from the perspective of Jesus? That's the challenge for us. That's the mission training opportunity that Jesus wants to give to us today. And are we going to take it? Are we going to believe that he can do it, that we can take him in his word? And are we really going to believe that he can use us? So how did it go? How did the mission training of Jesus go? Well, this is a slightly awkward bit now because as a preacher, you want a big ending, don't you? You want to kind of leave everyone feeling excited. Yeah, we're out there. We're out the door, Dave. We're going to do it. 
The trouble is it doesn't happen like that because this is reality. Listen to what happens. Verse 52. We hear this about Jesus then walking uh, on the water. And they don't understand what's happening. He climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. And what does Mark say? For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. You think, Jesus has done all this training and they've missed it. And it gets worse if you go into chapter 18, verse 14. They're having this conversation. And we're told by Mark that the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And Jesus uses it as an example of actually what's happening with the religious leaders. He said, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of the Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. They are still hung up on this bread thing. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And you don't remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces on earth did you pick up? It's a tricky ending, isn't it? But it's a realistic ending. I think one of the reasons that I trust the gospel writers is that they don't try to paint this picture, this fantastic group who were just the most amazing people. They don't paint a picture of people who were always getting it right. It is likely that Mark's primary source was Peter himself. And the disciples were honest that they kept messing it up. They had this training directly from Jesus, and yet they were still struggling to understand. But you know what? Isn't that amazingly encouraging for us? Because it reminds us the kind of people that Jesus loves to use. Because Jesus didn't say, look, I have done this amazing thing for you. You still don't understand. Please go back to your villages. Get back to fishing and your activities. And I'm going to get another 12 who are much better than you. I mean, let's just start from the scratch again and we'll see how we go. Jesus didn't give up on them. He didn't request new pupils. He worked in and through them. See, it's people like you and me. That's why the Bible is so powerful, because they are just like us. It's the same Jesus, same mission, same us. But the good news is the grace of God, that he loves to use people like you and me. We don't have to wait till we get to a certain standard or a certain place or a certain level of maturity. That's the whole point of God's mission, his transformation of us and of his world and our communities, that he wants to use you as you are, where you are today, exactly what you're like, with all your good bits and with all your faults, with all your uh, accomplishments and with all your hang-ups with all your strengths and with all your weaknesses, with all your successes and with all your failures, he wants to use you. He's not looking at the person next to you thinking, I'd much rather use them. He's looking at you and wanting to use you. Will you take his hand in his mission and work with him?
Will you state your life on his words to you? Will you trust him for his call to send you out from here? Will you trust that he longs and loves to use you? I want to finish with some words I think Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, which in a sense sum up what Jesus is trying to say through these disciples. And I hope they're words that will encourage you as you leave from this place because they remind us that God's way of working is completely different from the world's. And he loves and delights to use people like you and me. This is what he wrote to this church in Corinth that was such a divided church and some people thought so little of themselves and some people thought so highly of themselves. This is what he writes. Don't, you don't need to follow it. Just, just kind of close your eyes and listen to these words and believe that this is what God is saying to you tonight. For the foolishness of God is wiser than people's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than people's strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He has chosen the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. Amen. We're going to, um, in a moment, Mike's going to come and lead us uh, in our communion. And that's it's just a, such a good reminder that our primary resource as we leave here is not to look at ourselves, but to understand that the resource that God has given us is his own son. And as we literally take in the bread and wine, it reminds us of the resource that we have within us, Jesus himself the new Moses, the new David. Let me, as we prepare for that, pray. As, and uh, before we do that, let's just have a moment's silence for us to think about what God is wanting to say to us tonight, where God is calling us to be involved in his mission and how he may be reminding us that he can actually use us as we are and where we are. So we'll have a bit of quiet and then I'll pray and then Mike's going to lead us. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for that amazing reminder from Paul that the foolishness of God is wiser than people's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than people's strength. Thank you for your amazing love towards us that you call us as we are and you love to use us. 
You're never wanting to eject us from the team and to bring in others. But you want to use us to bring in others into your kingdom. Lord, help us to believe you and take you at your word, that you can use us as we are, where we are, and that you have given us the most amazing resource, which is your Son, by your Holy Spirit, to be in us and live in us and work in and through us. We just want to thank you for Jesus, for your love for us, your compassion towards us. Lord, we pray that we might be carriers of that love and that compassion into all the places that we will be in this coming week. But we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.